So, okay, let's jump into this webinar. Introducing Emily Jashinsky, a summer fellow of ours, San, uh, Sandra Scarlettu, uh, a rising junior at Mount Holyoke College. Sandra is receiving a double major in politics and dance and hopes to someday be a campaign advisor or school teacher. We're so happy to have her here with us this afternoon. Thank you. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm excited to have this opportunity to introduce Emily Jashinsky, the current culture editor at The Federalist. She's also a part of the Young America's Foundation Board of Directors and the National Journalism Center's Board of Governors. She previously worked as the spokeswoman for Young America's Foundations in 2015 and for the Washington Examiner as a commentary writer in 2017. She has interviewed many notable politicians as well as made appearances on Fox News Sunday, Media Buzz, and the McLaughlin Group. She's been published in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, and many other news outlets. She received her graduate degree in political science and creative writing from George Washington University in 2015. As a leader in the fight for the preservation of American culture, she will address the rise of cancel culture in the United States today especially as it relates to the Black Lives Matter movement and the destruction of monuments. I'm excited about this wonderful opportunity to listen to her speak on this topic she has spearheaded. Thank you all for tuning in. What a kind introduction. That was so nice. Thank you so much. And I'm so thankful um, to the Center for Conservative Women, for Michelle, for having me out here. Not just for having me out here, but also just for all that you guys do. Um, because, and also I just microaggressed micro everyone by saying you guys. Um, <laughs> but I am really grateful. Um, the Center was actually one of my first gateways into the conservative movement. I tuned into a panel that Michelle was doing with the wonderful Kate Ovenchain on C-SPAN uh, back in 2008, and that was one of, we were talking about Sarah Palin at the time, it was a hot topic back then, um, but that, just seeing that panel on, on CPAC and seeing strong, uh, smart, and, and brave conservative women, uh, it was really electrifying for me at the time, That's, that word is so accurate to me, it's exactly um, how I can describe stumbling across that C-SPAN broadcast. So I'm very grateful um, for all the work that you do, I'm very excited to be here today, I think uh, we have a lot to talk about. I think what we're talking about is extremely relevant to everything that's happening, not just um, in the news, but on the ground around the country. This is not what we're seeing play out before us every single day. Um, is this not a media creation? It's very real. It's very real, um, and it's time for everyone to start taking it seriously. Um, Conservatives have been shouting for people to take this stuff seriously for decades. And finally, the fruits of the far left's efforts on campuses is here and people don't like it uh, surprisingly as you know we told them they would not so i'm going to talk to you about what i call the progressive or bigot binary and this is the way that i think about this is, this is the best way i can think of to explain what we're seeing because it is confounding right how many times have you scratched your head at what's happened recently just you've been at a loss for words to explain some of the things that you're seeing happen. How many times recently have you thought, really? Really, we're doing this. How does this make any sense? Even for the left, how does it make any sense? We're seeing far left progressives succumb to cancel culture themselves. So how does that make any sense? Why are you attacking your own allies? Why are statues of abolitionists being torn to the ground? These are serious questions. And they seem to have no logical answers. And in a way, that's a statement in and of itself on the incoherence of the, the radical strain of progressivism that has been allowed to develop on college campuses. It's moved from classrooms to newsrooms to boardrooms. And that has been the progression. And it has hit critical mass. And that is what exploded in the past few weeks. So the way that I explain this is the progressive or bigot binary. It is exactly what it sounds like on the surface. It is a binary formulation that categorizes people either as progressives or as bigots, meaning there is no room for moderates or libertarians or, heaven forbid, conservatives. There's no room for any of that. There are only progressives and bigots. And it also crucially relies on an ever-narrowing definition of progressivism, which casts more leftists into that bigot category with each passing week 
Because day, really. So that's that's the, the basic way to explain it, and it is what it sounds like, right? But the second part that we have to remember is that it relies on the ever narrowing definition of progressivism, and by narrowing the definition of progressivism, and you'll see that we'll, we'll talk, we'll go all the way through all of their favorite words. But when you look at words like white supremacy and racism, they no longer mean what they meant five years ago, they certainly no longer mean what they meant 10 years ago. And that used to be on college campuses. You used to have people reading bell hooks and being taught that white supremacy is something that we all, that every white person um, is a part of. But now that's something that has made its way into literally into corporate boardrooms and into newsrooms. Um, I don't know if you guys have checked into any of the newsroom Slack channel leaks that we've seen in the last couple of years, but they basically read like um, one of the crazy campus meetings of a feminist group, right? Like these, these college age, Birkenstock wearing dorm room conversations about bell hooks. And I love Birkenstock, by the way, but uh, I don't, I don't want to knock them too hard. But you get what I'm saying. Like these are sort of unhinged campus conversations where you're speaking in abstract and they're smoking whenever they're smoking. That's what's happening in the newsroom now is migrated. And it's having serious consequences because those are people in positions of consequence. And this is the fruit of the radical strain of progressivism that developed in academia while neoliberals laughed at conservatives for paying campus craziness any mind. That's the moderate Republicans who laughed at the conservatives for caring about this. That's the Democrats who laughed at conservatives who, for caring about this. And it's the left that mocked conservatives for caring about it. And then you have the far left who knew that conservatives were right to be concerned because what they were doing was a threat to the country. It was a threat to the values that this country was founded upon. The far left knew. They knew. But everyone else was these crazy conservatives. When those kids get into the real world, we know what's going to happen. Well, they were wrong. Now, of course, those same people, the same people who mock conservatives, are signing letters and forming alliances with the likes of Noam Chomsky and Gloria Steinem, desperate to make one final stand against the crashing tide of liberalism that's crashing into what we call the real world. And it really explains everything. And I'm referencing the Harper's letter there, the, the Harper's Weekly letter. If you've heard about this story, this week, there were about 150, I would refer to them as elites from media and academia, sent on to a letter that was in support of, quote, open debate, as though that is something that our elites need to affirm their commitment to. It is a remarkable thing in and of itself that it was a legitimately brave act for some people to put their names on that letter. Some of them it's not brave. They have big platforms. J.K. Rowling, she's not going to get canceled. She's going to have to deal with a PR headache for years and years and years. But her books will continue to sell. Some people, however, immediately caught flat from their colleagues. Um, and wars erupted on Twitter uh, between colleagues who had signed this letter and some who thought that it was you know, something that had perpetuated white supremacy and anti-trans um, ideology simply by attaching their name to a letter in support of open debate. Now the letter itself had some, I would say rather amusing blind spots about how, you know, it, it, we've quote come to expect a liberalism from the radical right. As though we hadn't come to expect it from the radical left that was throwing pies in the faces of Phil in the face of Phil Schlafly um, in the Saturdays. Right, no, that was never a problem on the radical left. They were always so peaceful. Uh, so, so peaceful and just so uh, non-problematic. But the roots of this binary are easily traced back to feminist thinkers and to critical race theorists influenced by the post-structural ideas of people like Foucault. And for everyone who's uh, watching the webinar, I'm speaking to a group of young college-age women. Have you guys been assigned Foucault in class? Seems like a couple, but a lot of heads, no. I was definitely assigned Foucault. Um, you're probably assigned people who have been influenced <laughs> by Foucault, which is basically every meaningful thinker, uh, leftist thinker um, in academia. But what we should do is try to start tracing the roots of this back. And it'll really help. It helps illuminate 
why we're seeing, for instance, a movement in support of racial justice topple the statue of an abolitionist. When you're taught that every single American institution is soaked in white supremacy, scorched earth is your only option. And that's what they're doing. Make no mistake about it. It is scorched earth. Now, not everybody on the left right now supports tearing down the statue of tearing down statues of abolitionists. In fact, most of them likely do not. But the same incoherence that informs those decisions is at the heart of all of this. So, get into diving into the roots of the progressive debate binary. I'm going to start with something I imagine a lot of you have heard of, um, written by a feminist theorist named Peggy McIntosh. You know I'm going this. White privilege, unpacking the invisible knapsack, a very famous essay, um, and a checklist, actually, that is assigned to millions of students every single year. I see a lot of heads nodding. You guys have been assigned this, or you've come across it. Yeah, absolutely. It's really popular. It's popular, in, like, just not even on liberal campuses, right? Like, this is something that has been mainstreamed. And you know what? I think some of the items in Peggy McIntosh's checklist are actually kind of provocative and interesting. The things that you don't really think of before. And so for everybody who, who hasn't read this essay, I'm gonna have some key excerpts from it that show really how Peggy McIntosh is one of those feminist thinkers. Um, she was writing, th this particular essay is from 1989, so writing at that time, um, as we're moving into the 90s, and you know, that's been 30 years now, more than 30 years now, um, that it's had, you know, all that opportunity to develop and morph and uh, become what it is now. But Peggy McIntosh wrote this very famous, um, today we would call it viral, essay on white privilege, which it, it provides some feminist theory on white privilege and an essay on top of a, a checklist basically that asks white people uh, to check off boxes if it is true to their experience. One of the ones that's always stuck with me is I'm able to buy, it's sort of like everyday experiences that you have in your life. One of the ones that's always stuck with me is I'm able to buy band-aids that match my skin color. So it's stuff like that, right? Um, and thinking about that as part of this equation of privilege that you amass over the course of your lifetime as a white person. Now, I actually do believe the concept of privilege. I think it, it doesn't make any sense to deny it. I think it, it absolutely exists. But the left, <laughs> the left concept of privilege is so broad and so powerful to everything that it is really it ends up dominating. And it what in order to, to have that worldview, you have to deny a lot of the wonderful privileges that we have just by being Americans, um, and that we have by virtue of our founding documents. But let me read you some, some quotes from Peggy McIntosh, and you might start to see why we are where we are today. Here's, here's something from the essay. As a white person, I realized I had been taught about racism as something that puts others at a, dis as something that puts others at a disadvantage but had been taught not to see one of its corollary, corollary aspects, white privilege, which puts me at an advantage. After I realized the extent to which men work from a place of unacknowledged privilege, I understood that much of their oppressiveness was unconscious. Okay, this is really interesting. She used the word unconscious. How does that word function in the formulation of the progressive or bigot binary? because it expands the definitions. It starts to allow those definitions to broaden because you're doing it even if it's not intentional. And the next step to that is what we're seeing right now with the book White Fragility, which I'm going to get to later, but it's literally sold out on Amazon right now. I checked on my way here. Sold out on Amazon right now is, you know, the single book that has defined this, this tumultuous moment in American history is that book. White Fragility is what everybody is buying, and it's what everyone is being recommended. So, this is the stepping stone to that, and we are reading Peggy McIntosh in 1989. And an essay that's of course so widely circulated and informs the way a lot of college students and people who go through the education system uh, think about these ideas. So here's another, here's another paragraph from Peggy McIntosh. After I realized the extent to which men work from a base of unacknowledged privilege, 
I understood that much of their oppressiveness was unconscious. There's that word again. Then I remembered the frequent charges from women of color that white women who they, whom they encounter are oppressive. Oppressive. See how she just expanded the definition of the word oppressive. So we have unconscious, we have oppressive. So I began to understand why we are just seen as oppressive, even when we don't see ourselves that way. I began to count the ways in which I enjoy unearned skin privilege and have been conditioned into oblivion about its existence. Conditioned into oblivion about its existence. My schooling gave me no training in seeing myself as an oppressor. Sounds like our education system used to be a lot better. <laughs> as an unfairly advantaged person or as a participant in a damaged culture. I was taught to see myself as an individual whose moral state depended <laughs> on her individual moral will. <laughs> I was taught to see myself as an individual whose moral state depended on her individual moral will. That is a beautiful sentence. <laughs> In fact, that is exactly how we should all see ourselves. But you can see then, as we were just talking about, how the far left, where they have been peddling on college campuses for years and years and years, really was deliberately, openly, explicitly attempting to undercut the way that we think about things like individualism and morality in this country. They weren't trying to hide it. This was part of their purpose. They wanted to tear down the system, and now they are doing it symbolically by the scorched for tearing out of statues of other cultural institutions, even in the silly political correct things they do, like changing the name of a rice brand, right? That's what this is about. And it was under our nose the entire time. Now, conservatives, of course, were, I'll use this word, woke to it. Here, we knew this was happening. We read unpacking the invisible knapsack. We unpacked our, our knapsack. When you knew what was there, there was a lot of laughter uh, at sort of the hysteria from conservatives about how this may be conditioning and socializing generations of young people who were increasingly being funneled through the system of higher education. So what we take from that, and Peggy McIntosh is a, is a feminist theorist. She's writing on race here. She's talking about how her perspective as a feminist theorist started to inform the way she thinks about rights. There's also a, a school of philosophy, I suppose you could say, called critical race theory. You guys studied that and heard of it? Okay. So th these are all sort of like the stepping stones to where we are right now. And you can see some of them are actually just basically where we are right now, and some of them are kind of the seeds. Um, but here's a, um, here's a good, here's a good summary. Um, <laughs> This is from the Atlantic article. So they're saying the school of critical race theory, championed by scholars such as Bell Hooks, who we'll get to in a minute, has been around in academic circles for at least 30 years, and its definition of white supremacy has long animated black activism. Its definition of white supremacy. Now, this is a fairly sympathetic article that is, is itself saying a critical part of critical theory is its definition of white supremacy. The definition of white supremacy that critical race theorists operate off of is essential to what it offers. So, to quote scholar Francis Lee Ansley, um, by white supremacy, I do not mean to allude only to the self-conscious racism of white supremacist hatreds. I refer instead to a political economic and cultural system in which whites overwhelmingly control power and material resources, conscious and unconscious ideas of white superiority and entitlement are widespread, and relations of white dominance and non-white subordination are daily reenacted across a broad array of institutions and social settings. All right. Uh, some of you guys are in college, and some people watching are probably in college, and that probably sounds familiar to you here in college, because it's not just something you get if you take a class in the women's studies department. That's what you get at orientation. That's the stuff that pass out at orientation. It's the stuff that's on bulletin boards as you're walking through the hallway. And its effect is actually pretty difficult to quantify and to understand 
because it becomes osmosis. It's everywhere on these college campuses where generations of young people have recently been funneled into. So more and more young people off to these campuses, and the campuses are more and more radical. And it's just part of your everyday life. It is not something that you can question. I had a professor in a class called Philosophy of Race and Gender, who before saying a word on the first day of class, went up to the chalkboard and wrote, race is a social construct. That is a factual. Are there elements of race that are social constructs? Absolutely, absolutely. There's no question about it. But if you did not accept that premise, and she meant it literally, how can you participate in the rest of the class? So for a lot of people, you're just sort of pushed into accepting these narratives in order to participate in academia, period. And now it's you push into accepting these premises in order to participate in American culture, period, because the people who um, were, were pushed into accepting it in academia are now not in their culture. They're in the newsrooms, they're in the boardrooms, the boardrooms are on Wall Street, the boardrooms in Hollywood. So that's why we are where we are today. And that's why I imagine the quote that I just read is familiar to anybody who spent time on a college campus recently. By white supremacy, I do not mean to allude only to the self-conscious racism of white supremacist hate groups. Now you can have a whole conversation here about how this dilutes the definition of white supremacy, right? Because when we are considering every white person a white supremacist, it makes it harder for us to appropriately understand and uh, label the evil that exists in legitimate, let me use his phrase, white supremacist hate groups, which do exist. Sadly, unfortunately, tragically, they do still exist in this country. We have done a spectacular job uh, stamping it out um, over the last half century We've made remarkable progress in a very short time span. A very short time span. I was on YouTube a few days ago listening to recordings. This was extremely moving. Recordings of former slaves, of freed slaves. We can listen to that on YouTube. That's how recent it is to our history. And that's how fast progress has been made in this country, thanks to our founding documents written by the imperfect men who we are now canceling because of their imperfections, despite the fact that they left us a roadmap to correcting so many of these sins, so many of these cultural sins. They came up with the roadmap. They were imperfect men, and we should absolutely acknowledge that. We've made progress, and we've made it quickly. And I encourage you to listen to those recordings, because they are really moving. And the fact that we can actually hear on audio the accounts of people that were held in bondage in our own country, it really puts into perspective how rapidly we've made progress. And it was, it was a hard fight. It was a hard fight. And there's no, there's no denying that. There's no way to pretend it wasn't. It was. And there's, of course, of course, still progress to be made. Of course, there's still progress to be made. But when we call everybody a white supremacist, when that phrase in this country has historically referred to a movement and to an ideology that is so vile, and we take that connotation and assign it to every single white person, it's not even just assigned to every single white person. It's assigned to people of color as well who dare to go against progressive beliefs. And this is where the binary comes back. You are either a full-throated progressive who agrees with every single aspect of that worldview. Or you're making. That's how Clarence Thomas can be called a white supremacist. A racist. That's how you all can be called sexist. That's how they do it. That is the binary. It does not matter if you say you're pro-woman and you sincerely believe that you're pro-woman and you do charity for women. Because you have to believe in every single detail of, the, of their 
progressive laundry list. Um, and that's how it works. And that's why the binary, I think, is a really helpful way to think about this, because they have categorized this, or they have set up these categories in a way that implicates everybody who's not progressive in grave sins. Every single second that they breathe and are progressive, right? That's why this is so powerful. Because the people in those newsrooms and boardrooms, they don't want to go against that. I mean, of course, we now have a generation of people who were taught it, and a lot of them bought into it. But oh my goodness, is it worth it to just do the HR seminar or to ask for somebody's resignation to avoid being called a white supremacist? To avoid the PR crisis of being called a bigot? I mean, you can see why a lot of people would make that calculation. And that's how to snowball to where we are right now. So let's go to Bell Hooks. You guys know Bell Hooks? Bell Hooks does not spell her name with capital letters because that is patriarchal. This is a, a quote from Feminism is for Everybody, a book from 2000 that distilled a lot of Bell Hooks's uh, prior theorizing um, into one very handy volume. Um, I actually highly recommend it as a primer um, on <laughs> contemporary feminism. Uh, but let's, let's, this is a really interesting quote from her. She says, for example, let's take the issue of abortion. If feminism is a movement to end sexist oppression and depriving females of reproductive rights is a form of sexist oppression, then one cannot be anti-choice and be anti-feminist. Okay. See what is in there? That's a binary. That's a binary because she's expanding the definitions, consciously expanding the definitions. Here's another quote from Feminism is for Everybody. Clearly not. Just because they participated in anti racist struggle did not mean that they had divested of white supremacy. There she is referring to people who were actual activists demonstrating against racism, and she is saying that they had not divested of white supremacy. Divested of white supremacy. It was difficult to face the reality that the problem did not just lie with men. Facing that reality required more complex theorizing. It required acknowledging the role women play in maintaining and protection, perpetuating sexism. As more women moved away from the destructive relationships with men, it was easy to see the whole picture. It became evident that even indiv individual men divested of patriarchal privilege, the system of patriarchy, sexism, and male domination would still remain intact, and women would still be exploited and or oppressed, but visionary feminist thinkers have understood from the movement's inception that collusion with patriarchy, even patriarchal support in some aspects of feminist movements, will leave females vulnerable. We saw that rights gained without fundamental change in the systems that govern our lives could easily be taken away. Okay. There is a lot to unpack there, as our friend Peggy McIntosh would say. But, again, this is all insisting on a binary, binary formulation, progressive or bigot. She is saying that even some aspects of the feminist movement are anti-woman. They leave females vulnerable. Okay. That is the whole book, basically. That is feminism is for everybody. It's Actually, everybody to be feminist has to agree with this particular worldview. So you can see how that is a book from the year 2000. So 20 years later, that I use the word seed, stepping stone. But it was really close to what we're seeing right now because what we're seeing right now is critical mass. And as these ideas really started to catch on, it basically was what it is now being taught everywhere. So I'm going to go to my personal favorite feminist theorist, the lovely Judith Butler, who would not like to be called lovely, I'm sure. Uh, Judith Butler is a, a very influential post-structuralist philosopher. Um, why I want to talk about Judith Butler right now, everything Judith Butler writes could be 500 words, but she does it in 50,000. Um, she is important to the, the expansion of the definition of the word violence. She's a linguistic 
theorist. Um, she, she does a lot of other stuff too, but she's a, she's a linguistic theorist. And I'm reading actually contemporary stuff from Judith Butler. Judith Butler was writing a lot in the 80s. Um, but I want to read some of her thoughts on the Trump administration so you can see her applying the Judith Butler philosophy right now. Here's a quote from a New Yorker profile of her. The physical blow cannot be the only model for thinking about what violence is. Anything that jeopardizes the lives of others through its explicit policy or through negligence, and that would include all kinds of public policies or state policies, are practices of institutional or systemic violence. Violence. I think she was talking about the border policy in that interview. But wow. This is the, the expansion of the definition of the word violence is one of the things that has everybody shaking their heads. I remember when I was in college, my YAF chapter um, declined, asked not to participate, literally just asked not to participate in a mandated pronoun training. And we were called violent for doing that, for asking not to participate in a mandatory training that we already violated our relationships. We literally were called violent. And when I communicated that to people who hadn't spent time on college campuses a lot, uh, they were so confused. I mean, it just makes no sense, right? It, it really doesn't make any sense. But when you read Judith Butler, who was assigned at every college campus in the country, except maybe Hillsdale, it does, right? It does. It makes a heck of a lot of sense that there are people down by the White House right now with signs that say silence is violence. And those signs are absolutely, absolutely there because I've been covering those protests. And those signs are everywhere. And that's what is motivating this movement. Because a generation of students has been taught that you are either silent or you're violent. You are either progressive and sufficiently progressive, but that makes the whole progressive binary progressive or bigot binary a little too clumsy if I say it like that. You either have to be sufficiently progressive or you are a violent bigot. That is the binary. Now let's get to white fragility, and this is where I'm wrapping up. White Fragility is sold out on Amazon right now. I checked on my way over here. That book is explicitly premised on the notion that racism is not only perpetrated by, quote, bad people. It wants to change the cultural connotation of the word racism so that we can understand how we are all racist, how we are all white supremacists. And White Fragility argues that white people who do not accept that, here's another binary, are necessarily, an example of white fragility, necessarily participating in the practice of white supremacism. Okay, well, <laughs> again, we have very different definitions than they do. And we argue, I think rightfully, that the definitions are wrong. Do I think good people are capable of racist behavior? Absolutely. Absolutely, I think that. Of course. Of course. That doesn't mean you expand the definition of the word racism and white supremacy to include literally the act of breathing as a white person. Again, that's the binary. White fragility is everywhere right now. That is what people who are trying to be better Americans and who are trying genuinely to support the concept of social justice and racial equality, that's where they're flocking to source to buy. Like I said, it's sold out on Amazon right now. It's not easy to just sell out books on Amazon after weeks of protests. It's gone. That's how many people have bought it. Sold out. Okay. So maybe we'll all be forced to agree on this definition of racism and white supremacy and oppression and violence. Or maybe we are now in a cultural civil war because we have been asked to do that, and it makes no sense. It makes no sense to many, many people who are genuinely not racists. They may be capable of insensitive behavior, and we should learn how to be good people. Of course, of course, of course. We should not impugn good people as racists and white supremacists when those words are violent. When those words, the violent oppressors, when those words in this country have evil, evil histories that we are all aware of, and that we are not guilty of right now. 
using all of these texts as the deliberate expansion of the definition of words associated with bigotry, whether it's racism, white supremacy, sexism, patriarchy, that implicates everyone who disagrees with those expanded definitions. It's really ingenious, actually, right? That's how a word system that either makes you a terrible person or a savior. And everyone will want to be in one category. And everyone who doesn't, well, gosh, they're needed. Genius. Not only they did it on purpose, won't give them that much credit, but it's smart and it's effective and it may have taken 30 years, but we're here. This is how the binary was created and it's how it's reinforced in classrooms and newsrooms and boardrooms where even concepts like objectivity, free speech, and quote, open debate are labeled problematic. There are people who signed a response letter to a letter on open debate saying that they agree with the concept of open debate and then explaining exactly why open debate shouldn't be agreed upon um, from some of the biggest newsrooms in this country. So the concept of open debate is not controversial in major newsrooms. I literally have read students writing to their papers, their, their school papers, about how the concept of free speech is white supremacist. Every institution, every value, that is cherished and considered to be essential to American life is soaked in white supremacy. We're at cultural scorcher, right? Everything must go. The weeks since George Floyd's wrongful, tragic killing have been head spinning for those of us who work on these issues, but also for the public at large. Head spin. I think that's the best way to say it. How else can you say it? Head spin. People wonder why, quote, cancel culture is coming for Abraham Lincoln, for abolitionists, but also for a prominent progressive chef who once dressed up for Halloween as Amy Winehouse only to come under attack years later for allegedly wearing brown face when a picture of that outfit resurfaced. I'm referencing Alison Roman of the New York Times, a very popular chef who was apologized after someone called her out for dressing in brown face when she actually was dressed as Amy Winehouse, which is kind of a racist allegation, <laughs> frankly. Uh, people are wondering why the cancelers are coming for a Boeing executive who resigned after people found a 30-year-old blog post that argued in favor of keeping women out of combat, which is a position that everybody agrees with now, that can now force a major executive out of a job that he has poured much sweat into. They're wondering how a speech at Mount Rushmore could be determined to quote, glorify white supremacy by the official Democratic Party. Not by Democrats, not by random people online, but the Democratic Party. They're wondering why Eskimo Pies had to change their name for racial insensitivity. They're wondering why a football coach had to, was forced to apologize for wearing a conservative t-shirt. They're wondering about the dismantled Minneapolis Police Department. They're wondering about Lady Antebellum. They're wondering about Paw Patrol. They're wondering about cops. So much has happened in so little time. But that's what happens when things snowball. Conservatives said this was gonna happen for a long time. Now, I didn't know that it was gonna happen so quickly that we were going to hit critical mass and that snowball was suddenly going to become crushing in a matter of weeks, but that's exactly what happened. We are all bigots in the last, in the last estimation. They even call themselves bigots. Uh, but progressives es progressive escape the category, and they're absolved of their sins so long as they can keep up with every new rule fastidiously, which is impossible, even for the most well-intentioned people, like Alison Ryan. It's your job. And that's why everyone can and will be canceled. Answers? Everyone can and will be canceled. And it's because the standard is impossible. The binary sets us an impossible standard for everybody. With that, I will take questions. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Emily, for taking the time to talk about um, the progressive or bigot binary, and not only that, but the hypocrisy of the left within the and within the Black Lives Matter movement. So one of our fellows asked if um, how would you advise us, or how can we push back um, the feminists um, so as to take back our own culture, specifically like conservative women and our idea of feminism? 
Well, I think the first, and, and it's taken me, you know, years to be able to think of, think clearly about these things. You know, I always knew that what they were up to was wrong. And I saw it firsthand when my act tracker brought Bill Schlafly to GW back in 2012. She was 89 at the time. And there were protesters lining a very, very narrow hallway, like this narrow, shouting in her face. The face of an 89-year-old woman about how there's a special place reserved in hell for her. Um, so I knew what I was saying was wrong, but it takes a long time to be able to think clearly about these things. To solve a problem, you have to identify it. You have to name it. And for me, being able to think clearly about these things is the best way to then also be able to get into a debate and conversation. You have to have, I think, a really cohesive worldview. And you have to have confidence in it. And that's not an easy thing to do. It comes with reading, which is something that millennials and I guess you guys are Zoomers are really bad at. Um, really bad. I mean, we read tweets, we read articles, but like actually sitting down and reading books, like the wonderful tone feminism is for everybody. Um, but it just comes from having a cohesive worldview and a confident worldview, because then when you have those two things, you can get into a conversation and you can say, you are participating in a binary that we must reject because it is based on false premises. And you can explain to them what that is, um, but really just being armed with facts, is, and this is like cliche, but it's so important because as leftists really, really are challenged. We're challenged when you guys bring Kate Obenshane to campus or when Ben Shapiro comes to campus. We're not really challenged in the classroom, they're not challenged in those dorm room conversations, but conservatives have to have this stuff on the tip of their tongue. Right? They have to have the best arguments at moments notice, and um, you know, so it's really just being articulate and confident, um, and having the facts on your side. is it, It's just the, it is the best way, and you have to also acknowledge that there are some people who are beyond persuasion because they are involved in their worldview for reasons that have nothing to do with reason, um, and, and maybe that's the avenue you have to take to persuade that type of person, but. They're not going to listen to facts. So you can shout about facts all day long. It's, it's not going to change their mind. And so you have to know when you're dealing with somebody like that as well. <laughs> um, are there any authors you would recommend um, to our listeners who detail the left's uh, hypocrisy and basically their delusional arguments about feminism? Are there any conservative female authors? Uh, Christine Hossamers, not a conservative, but uh, one of the best authors on this. I, I worked uh, as an intern for Christina for two years. And it was one of the best experiences ever. Christina is brilliant. And um, she has she has a national feminist podcast, but what you should really read is Who's Still Feminism, which was her book from the, the early 90s. It is an incredible book. And it goes through how they're able to sort of completely get away with misinformation that they funnel into media and that they teach in classrooms. It is so wildly, wildly out of line with the facts. And some of the stuff is, is mind-opening. And when I was obviously with research, I would dig into some of the studies that these major feminists were citing. Uh, like the wage, one of the wage gap studies was one of the best examples. I get to the end of the study, and she was like, it's in a footnote, it's in a footnote. No. So I, I look at it, and I'm like, okay, so in this footnote, they just said, if you control for all these variables, blah, 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 the wage gap was 93 cents on a dollar. Okay, <laughs> that was the study. <laughs> the 73 cent number that you spent 200 pages in this white paper on. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it's, it's Christina is one of the best authors on this, and she's really well-rounded, um, goes through everything. The most important book, I think, for, for young conservatives to read, honestly, is uh, Coming Apart by Charles Murray. Uh, really, really important book on, on how we are, where we are right now, culturally. Um, Tim Carney followed that up with Alienated America last year. Fantastic book. The other one I would recommend is Mary Eberstadt's um, new book, which is uh, it's just excellent. It's, it's kind of... It's sort of like coming apart and alien America, but you know, it talks about how the sexual revolution led to identity politics, led to the rise of identity politics. And I think, it, you know, in terms of what we were just talking about, about having a cohesive worldview and being able to say, I know exactly where that came from. I know why you think what you think, and I know why it's wrong. Mary Everset's book is a, is a great way to start developing some of those thoughts. So those are my recommendations. Perfect. And then as um, a pop culture ed editor for The Federalist, how do you feel that conservatives can be more of a voice amidst the left's takeover of pop culture? Is there a way to do it? Are we already on our way of kind of taking over the narrative? You know, one thing that Hollywood responds to um, 
the only thing that Hollywood responds to is money. Um, and so they pretend to respond to the cause of social justice, but you know, at the same time, they're doing everything they can, letting the CCP censor their scripts uh, while they commit crimes against humanity um, when it comes to the Uyghur Muslims. And so they'll talk a big game about these things. What they really respond to at the end of the day is just money. And so um, we have to show there's a market for values being promoted um, in, in certain area, arenas of pop, of pop culture. Now, I do a terrible job of that because I watch this Vanderpump Rules and Bravo. Uh, and so what I tell Hollywood is, give me the progressive trash. I love it and I will revel in it. Um, but no, we have to, we have to, you know, so like when Tim Allen's show was on the air, it was so popular. It, it did really well. Um, it wasn't like a smash. It wasn't the number one show on TV. But when it got canceled, it got picked up again, um, last man standing. So it's just about saying that there is a market for this. Um, and it's about, I think, I don't know, you guys are younger than me. I think you guys are starting, your generation is starting to sort of have some backlash to some of these crazy ideas because spend a lot of time on YouTube. And what happens on YouTube, it's like the wild, wild west. It's the, it's, it is the, um, the marketplace of ideas. And, if Google has its way, it'll censor some of that stuff out, but it, it really is. And so I think there's some clarity starting to come through, like Joe Rogan, you know, stepping into, he's not, he's not a perfect thinker, he's certainly not conservative, but he's a good voice against some of the, these excesses. And I really think that's starting to shine in the, the wild, wild west of, of YouTube in particular. So I think part of it is just participating in, in the marketplace of ideas and, and doing a good job. Um, one thing I always tell groups of young people is that you are on the front lines. You, you look at the think tankers, you look at the talking heads on TV. I say this as somebody who spent three hours on TV this morning. Um, you look to those people as the experts and the people with real influence and real power. But we form our ideas when we're your age. Like the worldviews that we have for the rest of our lives really aren't flexible after you're at a certain, statistically, after you're at a certain age. That leaves you guys in the front lines. And that means when your professor is going on and on about abortion and how important it is and how you can't be pro-woman and anti-abortion, if you can find it in yourself to raise your hand and offer a different perspective, you might change someone's mind. And you might actually be that person somebody's had to make a decision make. So participating in the marketplace of ideas, even though it's harder than ever right now. I mean, believe me, I know. I know. <laughs> I put my opinion on the internet every day. I, I know it's really hard out there right now. Um, and I'm so glad I'm not on a college campus anymore. So I know it's hard, but part of it is just, you know, that's why organizations like this one are so crucial. So crucial. Because they empower you um, and find strength in each other. You know, don't lose touch with each other. That's one of the most important things for me is my friend group. I know that they back me up if someone's going to call me a racist. So part of it is, it, it, you know, it's small things. Yeah, bouncing off of uh, what you just said as well, we are seeing a lot more celebrities, even if they don't market themselves as conservatives. But, you know, J.K. Rowling came out in, in support of women with pro-women policies. And she was just totally attacked by the left. So we have all these celebrities coming out of the woodwork, but as you know, the monuments were getting torn down, it almost seemed as though our common day, the silent majority, were sticking their heads in the ground. Do you think that we're going to see a change in this as the election comes closer? Or is that just how conservatives are? We're, we're just quiet warriors? Or as Rachel Campus Duffy likes to say, happy warriors as women? Um, where, you know, rather than getting involved with all the Black Lives Matter protests and stuff, we're keeping, we're keeping our head down, we're working, and we're voting. We're showing our support for our votes. Um, do you think this election is going to, is there going to be a change in this type of behavior amongst conservatives? So I think it's so much bigger than politics. I think it's, it's so much bigger than an election. Um, and that's part of the reason I like doing what I do is because, you know, when, when I was doing more political coverage, um, it's, it's effect is more immediate. Um, but I think culture is so important because it's 
shapes generations. Um, that's what shapes generations. And it shapes those institutions. Like a lot of people don't pay attention to politics. And we're all on our little silos, right? Maybe a little politics, a lot of sports, or maybe a lot of Kardashians, a lot of politics. But we all have our little silos. And, and for a lot of people, like politics doesn't penetrate their daily life very much, but all those other cultural institutions do. Um, and so I, I think what's, what's frightening to me is that the Boeing executive resigned. Right? That's the stuff that freaks me out to my core. This is presumably an extremely intelligent and successful man who succumbed, right? And, and he hasn't come, in, come out and, you know, burned the barn down with some kind of speech, right? He resigned and he apologized. That's the stuff that really freaks me out. Um, and I think we see so many examples where people don't give into that pressure and come out really strong on the other side. Um, because people respond to authenticity and sincerity. You can get up there and say, mm, no, no, listen, the people who are angry at me and think that I'm a racist white supremacist, it's this many people. You know, it's, it's this many people. They're really loud online and they're definitely in positions of power. But I'm going to stand up and speak for everyone else in the rest of the country who didn't go to Oberlin and isn't sitting in the Goldman Sachs boardroom right now. Um, not that I think there are a lot of Oberlin grads there, but um, <laughs> they, they didn't go to the elite schools and they're not sitting in these powerful boardrooms. But um, they're just normal people, and their definitions of racism, white supremacy, and violence are the right definitions, not the not the Bell Hooks definitions, but the Judith Butler definitions. And this stuff to them is just crazy. It's crazy. And so when you stand up, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to, any consumers are going to punish you, but, you know, in, in large groups, you'll be fine. And you have to show that these storms can be weathered. What we're seeing right now is people resigning. We're seeing the apologies. We're not seeing people, we're not seeing a lot of people stand up. Um, and that's what scares me. That is what scares me to my Well, we'll end on sort of a positive note. If you could give your last piece of, of advice to our young women listening and how they can be active, you know, activists on their campus despite COVID, you know, breaking up the school year, but how they can still be um, active within the conservative movement. Um, sure. Yeah, my first piece of advice just for young women in general is, is go to church. Um, I'm not through my twenties yet, but I've seen that that has been. Um, a consistent variable and, and my friends who have had really positive experiences in their 20s and are coming out on the other side of them um, happily and with stability. So that's that's my piece of advice. I think that is, that is so important. Uh, but in terms of promoting conservative ideas and as a student in the age of coronavirus, uh, I think you have to look at where are you guys right now? Think about where you're spending your days. You're probably spending a lot of time on Instagram. Uh, you're probably spending a lot of time on YouTube. And so you have to think about what media your peers are consuming and then you think, ha have to think about how to counter it. So maybe, you know, that's a mix of all kinds of different platforms, but that means you have to be really good at talking to people where they are. And to do that, you have to know where they are. So where, where is everybody spending their time? And then how can you jump into that conversation, into that arena? You gotta know where it is first. Um, so if, if you've noticed a lot of your friends are like in Snapchat groups, you know, figure out a way to have, you know, to have conversations in Snapchat groups that are difficult or whatever it is. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I'm still young enough to realize that it really isn't, it really isn't. Um, so find, you know, be able to figure out where people are and, and meet them there. That's a lesson that will, you know, be good for you, not just now, but long after you are graduated. So that, that's my best bit of advice, and I am just... Listen, I am so exhausted with all of this. It's breaking my heart every single day. I'm terrified. Um, and I uh, just hope that all of you can pray and can find the strength to be in this fight. Because um, we just need everybody. We need everybody. So thank you very much.